0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk of London's most notorious and often forgotten murder cases. All set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is a guided walk of one of the West End's most shocking murder cases, which is also one of the saddest, as although there is no mystery over who killed who, this needlessly cruel death will make you question who the victim or victims actually were. Murder Mile contains vivid descriptions, which may not be suitable for those of a sensitive disposition, as well as photos, videos and maps, which accompany this series, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 3: The Bedford Bury Baby Batterer. Today, I'm standing on a slightly forgotten little side street called Bedfordbury, WC2, in the parish of St Martin-in-the-Fields, right by the very epicentre of the West End's tourist district, with Covent Garden to the north, Trafalgar Square to the south, Soho to the west and the Strand to the east. And regardless of whether it's day or night, this area bristles with a throng of tourists, taxis and transparent ponchos, bus tours, Boris bikes, and good old British bobbies, buskers, beggars, and of course, the scourge of modern-day street performers, floating yodas. And yet, even if you've lived in London your whole life, it's unlikely you've ever been down a street called Bedfordbury, let alone seen it or even heard about it. And why would you? At just 460 feet long and 30 feet wide... The street is flanked on either side by an unremarkable mishmash of disjointed architecture, with listed buildings nestling next to modern monstrosities, an office space squeezed into whatever space is free behind the back doors of the English National Opera. And yet, at either sides of the street, people pass, but no one seems to walk down Bedfordbury. It is a distinctly desolate feel, and its design seems deliberately vague, almost as if it's trying desperately hard to hide from its own cruel history over 100 years after the violent death of Thomas James Mills. Situated at the street's south end, near the junction of Shandos Place, snuggled between the Thai Pot Restaurant at number 2, the Lemon Tree Public House at number 4, and just a spitting distance from the Charing Cross Road police station sits number three, Bedfordbury. A five-storey townhouse with seven bedrooms, three bathrooms and three kitchens, which recently sold for £2.5 million. Its fortune, in 2017, very much on the up, a far cry from the rancid, rat-infested hovel that it once was. In 1901 as Britain was crippled by yet another Boer War, was gripped in a state of national mourning after the death of Queen Victoria, and at around the time that little Thomas Mills's tiny lungs breathed their very last breath, Bedfordbury was widely considered one of the worst Victorian slums in London. It was famously chronicled by George Augustus Sala in Twice Around the Clock as there is a wretched little haunt called Bedfordbury, a devious, slimy little reptile of a place, whose tumble-down tenements and creaking courts spume forth plumps of animated rags, such as can be equalled in no London thoroughfare. I don't think there are five windows in Bedfordbury with a whole pane of glass. With nearly 300 tenants, lodgers and squatters, crammed into just 24 houses, none of which had electricity, gas heating, sewage or running water. And the other properties on the tiny side street, including two slaughterhouses, five brothels and six public houses, Bedfordbury was the epitome of inner-city squalor, and number three was a prime example. So much so, that just a few years after the brutal death of two-year-old Thomas, The building was demolished. In 1901, 19 tenants from five countries lived in four cramped flats at No. 3 Bedfordbury. Nine on the first floor, four on the second, three on the third and fourth with the top floor vacant as the roof had caved in many years earlier and was left unrepaired by an uncaring landlord. The conditions were squalid The stench was fetid, and inside, everywhere was damp, dark and dank. As with each row of houses separated by a thin alley, some, like Bridges Place, just 16 inches wide, even on the brightest of days, sunlight rarely shone into their homes as they were cast into the eternal shadow of gloom. Three of those tenants lived in their flat for just a few months, and none of them would ever return. The new occupants in flat 3, on the third floor of number 3 Bedfordbury, were a loving family looking for a fresh start, having left their problems behind them in Nunhead, South London. Although cramped and squalid, the flat was within walking distance from Covent Garden Fruit Market, where James John Richardson, The 41-year-old co-tenant had recently accepted a porter's job, hoping that, one day, he could finally afford to marry his fiancée, 30-year-old Lavinia Mills, as well as spending more time together with their two-year-old son, Thomas James Mills. Although big, burly and solidly built, James Richardson found work hard and the hours long often starting well before dawn and rarely finishing until after dusk. A backbreaking job, which he undertook every day of every week in every weather, simply to earn enough money to feed and clothe his family. So much so that most evenings, James would return to their tiny squalid flat, exhausted. His hard work repaid by just a few coins to cover the rent, a loaf of bread, a small sack of cast-off fruit and vegetables, and even if he couldn't afford it, a little toy for his beloved son Thomas. By all accounts, James was a doting father who loved his family with all of his heart. But as hard as he strived, for as long as he tried, his body simply couldn't cope, and before too long, he'd return home all bandaged, limping, broke. Sadly, in 1901, There was no such thing as sick pay. So if you didn't work, you didn't earn. If you didn't earn, you didn't eat. And if you didn't eat, you couldn't work. It was a vicious circle where the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Until the day that, hungry, homeless and broke, they would either freeze, starve or drink themselves into an early grave. And so, as James lay there, his pain growing greater as his back got slowly weaker, the bills began to pile up, his mood began to dip, and as hard as he strived to keep them at bay, his demons resurfaced. Being the mother to a restless two-year-old, Lavinia Mills already had her hands full as she held down three jobs to cover the costs as James's infirmity increased some of the other tenants at 3 Bedfordbury housed lodgers to supplement their meagre income. But with James's bouts of melancholy becoming more frequent and a crying child to contend with, there was barely enough space for the three of them. And so, as unskilled labour, Lavinia was part of an army of working-class peace workers who undertook an endless stream of monotonous roles with a stitching, peeling sorting or shoveling, for very little pay, and rarely in the same part of the city. And Before too long, Lavinia was holding down five jobs, not only to support her ailing husband, not only to feed and clothe her son, but to keep all three of them away from the workhouse passed by wealthy members of the British Parliament following a backlash by middle-class taxpayers who felt that they were subsidising the lazy, feckless working classes to sit, drink and breed. The Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834 saw that illegitimate children, those born out of wedlock like Thomas Mills, were the sole responsibility of their mothers. If their mother, whether working or not, failed to provide the basics for her child, such as food, warmth or shelter, she'd receive the dreaded knock at the door by the much-feared beadle of the parish, like Mr Bumble in Oliver Twist, who'd rip the fretting and wailing child from its mother's arms and drag it to live its short and miserable life in the workhouse. In London, by 1901, The mortality rate for children such as Thomas was 74%. Three out of every four infants died before they reached the age of five. But inside the workhouse, which was little more than a pauper's prison, where you were punished simply for being poor, each child was subjected to long hours of manual labour, a strict code of conduct, daily beatings, and was fueled by a bland diet of hard bread and watery soup. Therefore, many infants died of neglect and the workhouse death rate steadily rose to over 90%. And so, impoverished and with debts stacking up, Lavinia had no choice but to work twice as hard. By the height of the summer, with his injuries healing and his pain subsiding, James dragged himself back to work in Covent Garden Market, having rested up on the doctor's orders with a good long period of bed rest. But now, James was different. James had changed. With his face being so sullen, his movements clumsy, his eyes all glazed, raw and etched with an unusual yellow hue, His pain was masked, but now his agony seemed greater than ever, as weeks of immobility and infirmity had physically helped him recover. But mentally, amidst the damp, dark and dreary walls of his cramped cold flat, with no sunlight to soothe his nerves nor quell his temper, he lived in the shadow of eternal darkness, day after day, night after night, until slowly, his black moods returned. A few months earlier, on the day after they'd left Nunhead, carrying just three bags of clothes, a small handful of personal possessions, assured that this was the fresh start that the family needed. A new job, a new flat and a new life. With his mood up, their spirits high and the jagged razors across his wrists slowly beginning to heal, It was then, with tears in his eyes, that James promised his beloved wife and son that he would never drink again. Not one drop of alcohol would pass his lips. This was the promise he had made to them, and he remained true to his word.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
1: In his lice-ridden bed, his body racked with pain and his brain riddled with guilt, as a dark cloud of depression loomed over him, being poor, hungry and broken, that James made a desperate decision that would change their lives forever. And although he returned to work at Covent Garden Market, the new man who had moved to Bedfordbury was slowly replaced by the old monster, they had left behind in Nunhead. His painkiller of choice was gin. Neat gin. He would only need enough to lessen his pain, to lull him to sleep and to dull his senses. But even though on Bedfordbury alone there stood six pubs, with a further twelve within crawling distance, James couldn't afford to buy pure gin as being broke, this clear fresh alcohol fermented using a fragrant mix of juniper berries, coriander seeds, angelica root, licorice, orris root, orange, and lemon peel was too pricey to buy. So, like many workers whose lives were an endless state of drudgery and misery, he opted for what he could afford. Bootlegged booze, commonly known as street gin a murky cloudy mix of sulfuric acid and turpentine, which is left to ferment in an old steel drum, a sink or a bath, and flavoured with potato shavings, weeds, sugar and even human urine. It was soporific, numbing, addictive and worst of all, it was lethal. It was also James's little secret... According to Lavinia's testimony at the trial on the 21st of October 1901, John James Richardson was a good man, kind, warm and caring. A doting father who'd take his son for walks and always treated them both well. But ever since she had known him, James always had a dark side. By September, with a daily diet of neat street gin, To keep his physical pain away, James's moods had begun to blacken, his temper to increase, and sadly, his employment had ceased. Having been sacked, money now scarce, an eviction notice issued by the landlord, and his shameful addiction escalating, James was once again left alone in the damp, dark squalor of Flat 3 Bedfordbury. With nothing to occupy him, But his own dark thoughts and his two year old son, Thomas. Thomas hadn't slept in days, as with his nose wheezing, his lungs rasping, and his throat red raw, his bout of the croup got steadily worse, exacerbated by damp walls, dirty floors, unclean water, and a severe lack of nutrition. The only silence they'd ever receive in those last few days, as the incessant tears of the sickly tot rang in their ears, was when he would cry himself to sleep, exhausted. On the morning of Saturday, the 5th of September, 1901, as Lavinia caught a few short hours of sleep before the first of her five jobs, and as James took baby Thomas for a stroll, a new toy in hand, hoping that the mix of fresh air and playful distraction would soothe his sickly son. She was awoken by a dreaded knock on the door. As she opened the door, standing before her, with papers in hand, a policeman by his side, and a long list of unfit, unmarried mothers whose sickly children were destined to spend the rest of their short, hard lives picking oakum in the local workhouse, stood the beadle, Of the parish. An hour later, James had returned, and the beadle had gone, but he would be back. The last time Lavinia saw her son alive was at 9pm that evening, as he slept soundly in his cot, his little chest rising, falling and rattling with every exhale his cheeks flushed from the strain of crying. At the table sat James, eating a meagre supper, cutting up a few tatty leftovers, having fed his wife-to-be and son first. But that night, his eyes looked odd, stranger than usual. Their yellow glaze was red raw, with heavy dark circles forming beneath. She knew it wasn't just tiredness nor melancholy, as she'd seen that look before, a few months earlier, back in Nunhead. And as he sat there, knife in hand, slicing up a few small slivers of meat, she asked him directly, Have you been drinking? His answer, no. Lavinia left for the last of her five jobs just moments later. Heading out to earn hardly enough money to cover the cost of more medicine to make her son well again. Therefore, the following is based on eyewitness testimony given at the Old Bailey by the neighbors and those who attended the scene at No. 3 Bedfordbury. At a little after 9:30 p.m., Mrs. Traphinia Dimbleby, a widower living on the second floor, heard a banging. A hammering, as she described it. A heavy thumping noise emanating from the flat above. A man's angry voice was yelling. And in the midst of it all, a small child was screaming. In court, she stated, I went up to ask the prisoner, what was the matter? I knocked on the door. He said, what do you want? I said, if that noise continues, I shall have to speak to my landlord. I heard the child cry. And that is why I went up. But beyond the thick wooden door, a flat three, the child's screams continued. The terrified wail of a two-year-old, echoing around the damp, dark walls of the stairwell. Louisa and George Chauvre, a couple living on the fourth floor, ran downstairs to intervene. In court, Louisa testified that I heard a child scream. I heard Mrs. Dimbleby go to the door. The noise continued, and the child cried again. I and my husband went down to the door. My husband knocked. But this time, James Richardson did not answer. The screaming had stopped, and the child was silent. Fearing the worst, George Chauvrier broke down the door but it was too late. James didn't notice George break down the door. He didn't notice him enter the flat, and neither did he notice George stop dead in his tracks. His lungs gasp and his mouth drop open in absolute horror. As standing over the armchair, James stood. His face etched with rage, his teeth gritted in frustration, and his body as naked as the day he was born the room was silent all except for the soft heavy thud as james slammed his tightly clenched fists with all of his might down onto the tiny lifeless body of his 2-year-old son james's trembling voice screaming will you be a good boy now will you be a good boy now will you be a good, will boy, you now? Be a good boy now At 9.45 p.m., Constable Frank Hamilton of the Bow Street Police Station arrived at flat 3. The door was hanging off its hinges, James was partially clothed in a nightgown, and he'd unsuccessfully tried to wipe the child's blood from the armchair, the floor, and the wall. Between them, the tiny body of Thomas Mills lay. It took two men to restrain James and six to hold him down as he was arrested. James was charged with the willful murder of two-year-old Thomas James Mills, to which he replied, I did it, I did it for the child's good. Still to this day, it is unclear what drove James to murder his beloved son. Alcohol, anger, depression, maybe all three. Perhaps as James said, I thought I was doing it for the child's good. And that he was simply trying to spare his sickly child, born to an unmarried mother, from a short, miserable life in the workhouse. Later he would state, Me? Kill my child? You must be mad! I love my baby! And clearly he did. Or maybe, lurking under the drink and the depression, lay something more sinister. As he would later state... I thought the baby had a nerve, so I bit it through the mouth and on top of the head to do it good. At 9.50pm, having aided Constable Hamilton in restraining the madman, Constable James Gray went to assist the small, lifeless body of Thomas. His silent body was slowly cooling, and his face was a swollen mass of ruptured skin. But through the blood bubbles, he could see that, somehow, the little boy was still breathing. Cradling the child in his arms, Constable Gray rushed to King's College Hospital, barely a few minutes away. But as much as two-year-old Thomas fought a good fight, he succumbed to his injuries at 10pm. Robert Jake's the house surgeon at King's College Hospital listed Thomas's injuries as He had a cut on the scalp, a piece had been cut clean out, about the size of a florin. Both sides of the face were very much bruised. Part of the nose and upper lip had been torn away. One of the front teeth was knocked out. The fourth and fifth ribs on the left side were broken. The sixth, seventh, and eighth on both sides. There was blood in the stomach. The skull was fractured on the left side. There was a small fracture on the right side of the scalp. There was a great deal of laceration to the front part of the brain. The injury to the scalp was perfectly clean cut. But I cannot say what it was done with. But at the murder scene, no knife was ever found. Of the tenants at No. 3 Bedfordbury, James John Richardson was declared insane, tried at the Old Bailey on the 21st of October 1901, found guilty of infanticide, and was detained at His Majesty's pleasure until his death six years later in 1907. With his family unable to afford a plot, a funeral, or even a headstone, Thomas James Mills was buried in a pauper's grave, along with several other children who died that day, many in the local workhouse. And as for his mother, Lavinia Mills, exhausted, she arrived home that evening at 11pm, an hour after her son had died. In her hand, she held her wage which was barely enough money to buy the medicine she needed to make her son well again. She left Bedfordbury the very next morning and never returned. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoy this podcast, Please do rate us and subscribe to the Murder Mile podcast on iTunes, and also like us and share us with your friends. And if you're in London, why not take part in the Murder Mile Walk? It's my guided walk of Soho's most infamous murder cases, featuring 12 murderers across 15 locations, totaling 50 mysterious deaths, all in just two hours. For tickets, visit my website, MurderMileTours.com. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is the mysterious death of Dutch Leia. Thank you for listening and sleep well.